Welcome to episode 30 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Duane France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, you can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. When we're talking about suicide prevention, one of the things that many are interested in learning is what are the signs? What do I do when someone I care about is at risk of suicide? That's where the gatekeeper and suicide prevention and intervention trainings come in. We're glad to be able to highlight one version of that with our guest today. Shauna, what can you tell us about Rick? Yeah, so Rick Trimp is the president of Living Works, a company that provides suicide prevention trainings. Rick began his career as a physical therapy technician with the United States Navy and served as a Navy corpsman, providing a wide array of services. During his time in the service, he witnessed the aftermath of several suicide attempts and provided emergency care to those individuals. These experiences first led him to think about preventative factors for suicide. Rick comes from a military family as well, and for this reason and many others, suicide prevention is of both personal and professional importance to him. Yes, I'm really appreciative of the fact that we were able to have Rick come on the show, not just to talk about living works and their training, but also suicide intervention and prevention training in general. So we'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to bring back some of the key points. A lot of people are interested in what they can do to prevent suicide. And as I'd mentioned before we started talking, the assist training that I took and then that I instructed as I was retiring really form a basis for my approach to suicide prevention. But the education and awareness around suicide prevention is critical to addressing this problem. And that's what Living Works does. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been we've been in this business for uh, greater than 35 years now, Dwayne. And as an organization, we're a social enterprise organization. And so we're privately held. We have been able to stay over the last 30, almost nearly 37 years, focused only on the issue of suicide prevention. And we're recognized as the global leader in this field and uh, very proud of that. But it's a daunting task and it's really, really important. And I really appreciate this opportunity to have this conversation today. Yeah. And I appreciate all the work that you have done and will continue to do. One of the things that, that I describe people in, in very clearly what assist and safe talk and some of the other things are is gatekeeper training. Gatekeeper is one of these buzzwords that some people may not be familiar with. So I'm interested to hear when we talk about gatekeeper training for suicide prevention, how would you describe that? To me, I'd, I'd describe it as part of a system. Individuals can be trained, and we believe that everybody has a role to play in suicide prevention. We can train people in our communities to play a significant role, such as if you, if you wanted to use the analogy of CPR, we can train people the equivalent of CPR and suicide prevention. And it's interesting, Dwayne, there's a recent study that shows that people are 10 times more likely to use suicide prevention training than they are CPR. 
And so that statistic shows that there's a real need out there. So a gatekeeper training is somebody who can actually see somebody who might be struggling with thoughts of suicide, be able to have the skills to be able to engage in the conversation to help them develop a plan to keep them safe. And then also with that plan, it helps them navigate through health systems. Maybe they require counseling. And so it helps them navigate through that. And so that gatekeeper is a critical component to identify and to get people to the help that they need. And and gatekeepers can be anybody, right? People have this in mind that suicide prevention is something that other people do. One of the things that I recall and I often describe is that someone who is in a suicidal crisis is not likely to come in contact with me from the first as a mental health professional. They're more likely to come in contact with their friend or a barista or law enforcement or their probation officer. Those are the gatekeepers. And sometimes those individuals who are more likely to come in contact with somebody who's in crisis are less equipped to be able to manage that. Very well said. And, and it's so true. It's friends, it's family members, it's community members, it's teachers, it's another person on the construction site. It might be a fellow veteran that you served with, or it might be a family member of a veteran that you hang out with. And so those are the people that we train and our training is geared towards the public. It doesn't require a professional background in order to take our training. It's it's important that professionals do take our training because there are skills there that we don't receive when we go through our professional education. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes from mental health professionals to physicians and nurses that we would see in the emergency department. The other piece of that is that it, it does take a community of people to address this issue. And, and so we believe that we've got the training available for that community of people to actually make the difference in suicide prevention in addressing this issue. This is one of the themes that's been emerging over this series that we've been talking about is that it's not all on the community. It's not the community's responsibility. We just have pop-up peer support groups who may not have any training or this, but they're just a bunch of people wanting to get together and they want to help, right? So you have people building a community and then you have other people who think that it's a mental health community issue, but it's really both. And, and Living Works is providing the training for both of those camps and, and sort of a link between them. Not everybody would be comfortable escorting someone through the healthcare process, right? Someone may just be, I want to talk with someone and not hand you off to somebody else, but get you to the next stage. And again, that's something that really you believe is critical to suicide prevention is building this continuum. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the continuum of training, what we offer is actually people in our communities may want to play a role as an identifier. Uh, somebody next to me uh, might be a peer, might be, might be one of my friends that I see is struggling. Well, w- what's going on and, and how, do I, how do I ask those questions? And asking the question about, are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking about suicide? is a really important question to ask because it gets the conversation started. It's a really difficult question to ask if you're not trained because there's stigma associated with that. There's fear. There's fear that the person might say yes. But our training actually takes that example and works through it and talks about the importance of asking the question because we hear over and over and 
myself and my own personal life, I wish I would have had this training when I was active duty. I wish I would have had the ability to say, are you thinking about suicide and have the skills to be able to help that person navigate through to the help that they need. So that's one component, the identification piece. Another key skill is that person that intervenes with somebody who is in crisis. And so if, if somebody who's an identifier connects that individual to me, where I'm trained now as a person that can deal with that person in crisis, now I've got this safety net, if you will, where this person's been brought in and is brought to that next level of skill. So now I'm the person that's providing the intervention. I'm sitting down and I'm having a discussion with that individual and trying to get towards a safety plan to keep them safe for now. And so one of the things that's an example of that is what sort of plan do they have and how do I reduce those means? And coming to an agreement with that individual to reduce those means and then what kind of resources are available within my community, whether it's the emergency department, whether it's mental health counselors, crisis line, be able to form a safety plan with that individual so that we can keep them safe for now. And that person hopefully is able to come up with a safety plan and agree to be accountable with that safety plan and align with those resources. One of the examples that I use, because I've been in health systems for most of my career, and one of the examples that I use is that some training out there teaches people to identify and get them to the emergency department, and that's the end of it. But our training actually, with our safety plan, the emergency department is part of that. But what happens when that individual is discharged? Our safety plan actually helps that individual navigate after they've been discharged and they're waiting for their appointment with mental health or with other resources that might be linked with that. And so it's really important to have that safety net to help that person through their journey. I, I really appreciate that. It just made me think uh, you're a Navy veteran, right? And yes. I'm an Army veteran. And when we first came in the military, there were different stations. There was somebody to give us our boots and then they go right. to the next station and somebody to give us our uniform. And then the I next remember station, that well, right? I remember that well. And the person who gave us our boots didn't have anything to do with the person that gave us our headgear, right. but there was still somebody over the top of that, making sure that all of those pieces linked. Right. But sometimes we do suicide prevention. We do it station by station without having the overall connecting plan. It's critical, Dwayne, as a professional and as an individual who's, I'm sure, has done a number of interventions with your military service and with the training that you've received, is to make sure that there's somebody there that can actually be that navigator and help that person develop a plan and make sure that that plan is agreed to and that that person is accountable for their plan to help keep them safe. And so that's what we're talking about here is that if we're looking at communities of people, whether where we live, where we work, where we play, we have to have a role for everybody, whatever they're comfortable in playing. We've created a system of roles that enable that capability and create that safety net. We call it a network of safety for organizations, for communities. And, and one of the things that's really important too is that this is a very important subject matter and this requires a strong evidence base to, to make sure that what we're doing 
whoever's out there providing training is that it has to be evidence-based and it has to show the efficacy. It has to show that it works. And it also has to have a continuous improvement process because we learn. And, and that's what Living Works does uh, with all of our programs is we, can, we continually evaluate. We ask for third-party research to, to validate our programs. And that's a difference maker for us. And it's a difference maker in this sector. And, and that's one thing that uh, a lot of people want to do good, right? A lot of people want to help. And sometimes that help maybe isn't very helpful, right? I, I, I am a huge proponent of peer support, of which suicide prevention training is a portion. But peers need to be trained. They can't just all of a sudden, using your CPR example, they can't just slap a Red Cross badge on their chest and say, I know CPR, when then they haven't been necessarily trained. But sometimes they think that's the case when it comes to something like suicide prevention. Absolutely. The danger uh, that I think we've seen historically is that one program seems to be the magic answer and it's promoted as a magic answer when there's lots of evidence out there that shows that that just doesn't work. Whether it's an awareness program, whether it's a checklist, whatever it might be, until we can actually address a community of people with different practical skills and get that community trained up to what, what public health calls as a herd immunity. You get to a critical threshold where you've got all these connectors and these support nets. Until we can get there, then you really don't create a safe environment. And so it takes multiple skills. It takes a continuum of offerings, not only in training, but also with health providers, with mental health providers, looking at it as a system, because this is a complex problem. And you can't do it by implementing a checklist and, and calling that good enough. Yeah, and I appreciate that distinction. We here in Colorado, me and my community, very large military population, again, Living Works has been here with Peterson Air Force Base in Fort Carson and has a, a significant population here. But we're looking at that education and awareness piece as being part of the pillar, but also breaking it down, like you said, how do we train gatekeepers, but then how do we train providers? When I was in my master's program, when it came to suicide prevention, it was, here is what a safety plan looks like, here's what an M1 hold looks like, and that's it. And, and this is something that a lot of my colleagues have said, is that there is not enough suicide prevention training, even in the mental health profession, much less what you're talking about is the medical profession and the, the nurse practitioners and the MDs and stuff like that. Absolutely. Another point that I want to raise with you, Dwayne, is that there's a lot of strategy development that goes on in this field. And one of the things that's really important now with the pandemic, with isolation, with some of the trends that we're starting to see, we're hearing about crisis lines receiving 900 times the volume that they did last year. We're seeing a number of reports out there. One of the things that we need is we need actionable strategy. And I hear about different states, federal government, taking on uh, a strategic realm without any understanding about how they actually could take practical action. And that's really where the rubber meets the road is, is making sure that we have practical application so that we can address this uh, very important issue. And, and I think, again, this is something that has emerged as we go through this series of there is a disconnect 
what we know works at the strategic level, right? There's, there is evidence that things such as connectedness, as increased education and awareness, even to the point of increased economic stability, there's evidence that these things do impact suicide, but then how do we apply that on the ground level? And that's what you're talking about is that disconnect at the community action level versus all of the strategic theoretical discussions we're having at the national level. Absolutely. It's at the national level, it's at the state level, the, the strategic thinking, and that's important, but just as important as developing strategy, it's 10 times more important to be able to relate that right onto the ground and to be able to implement something very effectively. And we have multiple case studies where we've gone in and implemented into different organizations, different military commands, different civilian organizations, different communities, where we go in and we can easily and effectively implement our programs and make a huge difference in the rate of suicide on the ground. I think, again, there is that link that's critical. I was looking at an article online before we talked about how Living Works had partnered with Wounded Warrior Project to provide applied suicide and energy skills training. And there was one veteran who had taken this, and then he said he was at a wedding and at that wedding, he had, as you saw, he was an identifier and then into an interventionist, used his assist training. Number one, there was no mental health professionals or maybe not in a role of mental health professionals at the wedding that night. But he wasn't thinking about the national strategy to prevent veteran suicide. He wasn't thinking about all of these different complicated factors. He was just one veteran connecting with somebody else who was in crisis. Absolutely. And Dwayne, you hit it right on the head, is that... That happens over and over and over again. We, we get people that come out of our training and report back to us that within an hour, they're already using those skills uh, because this is a real community need and a community solution here to, to make sure that we have those skilled individuals embedded in our communities because you never know when it's going to appear. Your example of somebody at a wedding is a real one. And we hear about people driving home and coming across somebody in crisis or uh, get a phone call from a friend or a text from a friend. And immediately they're using those skills. I've got a number of examples in my own personal life where, and I mentioned to you before that if I would have had these skills before, I think I I would have been able to to make a difference. I, I firmly believe that. And over and over, we hear that same story from individuals that come through our our courses. And so my plea is to make sure that people get trained. We've got a number of different programs, depending on the role that an individual wants to play. We've got an online program, which is evidence-based. It's a skills development program. You develop practical skills on how to identify somebody who's at risk, and it takes 90 minutes of your time. We also have graduated skill sets with Safe Talk, which is a four-hour face-to-face program. Assist is two days in length. It teaches you to be an interventionist. Very highly developed skill that we teach out there. And so people have choices based on what role they want to play. And so once again, it's my plea to get, to get people trained. And we're talking about veterans here today, our veteran community. That's very, very important to me. I've got family members, I've got friends, I've got people that I've served with that I'm very concerned about. And I know the same for you, Dwayne. It's a purpose-driven 
responsibility is what, what I personally feel. It definitely is. And I sometimes have to make sure that my enthusiasm doesn't overcome my effectiveness, right? Because I can, right. and, and because it, it, this is a, a passionate and very personal mission. Rick, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If people wanted to find more about what Living Works is doing, how can they do that? They can go on our website and it, it shows how to contact us. Our website has uh, a lot of information on there for anybody that's interested in, in taking training or interested more about Living Works. So our website is livingworks.net and it has links to our different training programs and how to contact us either by phone, by email, or through our website. Dwayne, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for the difference that you're making. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I had been trained as an applied suicide intervention skills training instructor. It's certainly not the only training that provides practical skill development for suicide prevention intervention, but it's been widely used by the Department of Defense and, and some other communities. What were some of the key points that you got out of my conversation with Rick? Yeah, so Rick highlighted a point that a few others have also made in their interviews, and this point is worth emphasizing. He said that mental health providers do not receive specific training in intervening when individuals are at risk for suicide. Most of us would think that this would be a standard part of the training of all mental health professionals. In fact, there is some sense that sometimes the most high-risk patients are referred to some of the students with the least amount of experience. So we certainly throughout our training see people who are in distress, but do we get the training? Well, in the late 1980s, a survey of 92 doctoral programs suggested that only 35% reported offering their students formal training in managing suicidal crisis. Over a decade later, another research team surveyed 131 pre-doctoral internship programs across the U.S. and found that the training had only increased by about 10%. When a loved one is struggling with suicidal ideation, many times family members instinctively urge them to seek mental health support. What happens, though, if the individual who is struggling is paired with a therapist who carries anxiety about discussing suicide openly and directly? So in this way, the skills deficit becomes the real problem when we lean on a get-thee-to-the-doctor suicide prevention approach across society, which I would say we often do at present. No, I absolutely agree. I, I mentioned it, I think, in the interview, and I've talked about this uh, even on the other show, uh, Dr. Stacy Friedenthal, who is a colleague here in Colorado, very much focuses on the fact that in our graduate training programs, again, maybe counterintuitively, we don't get specific suicide intervention training. We get, here's a safety plan. We get, don't use the, the safety contract. And that's really about it, right? It's definitely not a course. And if anything, it's, it's just barely mentioned. And so I think it is important for mental health providers to get specific training, especially if we're working with service members, veterans, and their families, to get specific training in suicide intervention and response. For sure. And my second point is related to this, to, to really extend that a bit further, that while I think training is helpful as a way to begin developing comfort with sitting in the room when despair makes an appearance, I don't think it's sufficient. While I was at TAPS, I also completed the 
full two-day assist program offered by LivingWorks. And I found a helpful feature of that particular training was the role play aspect of it. There were scenarios of people who were in distress and students were given opportunities to practice responding. While it was helpful, I don't think anybody would disagree that at the same time, there's no substitute for multiple real-time conversations with those who are on the ropes with their demons. It's not just a matter of getting over the anxiety of asking the question. There are deeper issues we need to grapple with as healers, peer professionals, friends and family members. Things like the limits of our control and the anxiety about what could happen to us personally or professionally if our worst fear comes true and we lose someone to suicide. Leaning into these conversations does not come naturally for us. And it doesn't come naturally for us just because we decided to pursue a degree in mental health counseling. Doing this well is not only a factor of building skills, but of doing some deeper personal growth about who we are and what role we should assume. If we can shift to becoming people who can acknowledge the presence of despair without losing our center, we are more likely to have the privilege of helping someone save themselves. I really appreciate that training is necessary, but not sufficient, maybe, right? We, we need to be able to have the training. But when I was an instructor, I used to tell the students that this is like driver's ed, right? I can teach you the rules of the road. I can even put you in a vehicle simulator, but you really have to figure out what's going to happen when you get that car out into the road. And that's the same thing with applied suicide intervention skills training. I do very much like you think that a lot of the valuable work in those two-day workshops is done in the role-playing, but the role-playing is also very contrived and it's very scripted and, and it's meant to provide success for the students, right? To give them confidence and ultimately to be able to practice that when they get out into the real world. And so, yes, it's one thing to get the training, uh, but then never to use it, never to apply it. It's a skill that can atrophy just like any other. Yeah, that's a great analogy about the driver's ed, Dwayne. I really like that. I think, you know, Rick is a Navy corpsman. So his experience being in the trenches, he came into the job with that. So I think there's just no substitute for time in the trenches. And if you learn something, but you don't apply it, then there's a danger of people saying, well, you're assist trained. And yet inside, you don't have that confidence. You really have to sit in the room with the person and walk with them through enough valleys that you get really comfortable with what you control and what you don't and what your role is and develop, yes, a working confidence that's also balanced with an understanding that you don't control their behavior. Yeah. And, but again, that's that idea of just because you're trained doesn't mean you're proficient. I taught myself how to juggle when I was a teenager, but I'm not going to pick up chainsaws and just start throwing them around <laughs> in the air. Right. I mean, and that's exactly what you're talking about. And so really for those people listening, we, we recommend not just applied suicide intervention skills training or question, persuade, respond, or ACE, or the VA's save training. All of these are good trainings to get a base of knowledge, but you also need to figure out how to get some practical experience in working with individuals, as Shauna said, that are struggling through despair. Yeah. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS30. You can get all the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. 
As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.